we as Christians, I'm going to go ahead and start preaching as they pass it out. It's all right. Uh, it'll just be a little bit distracting. But we as Christians oftentimes talk about God's unconditional love. And, and it, it is a theological truth that, that we talk about and, you know, our head kind of understands that there is this theological truth that God has unconditional love for you. But the problem is we live in a world that loves based on condition. So we interact with a world that loves based on condition. And through that, we learn this message that is hit over and over and over again. And that message is your love based on condition. So although we tell ourselves that we understand God's unconditional love for us, there's something in our life that just keeps creeping back. That you have to do certain things to receive love. That you have to earn love. And if you're really searching your heart, you will find that there is something in your life that you think, if for some reason you didn't have this anymore, you would be unlovable. So what is it in your life that you hold on to that you think makes you lovable? I know a lot of guys that their their lovableness is based on what they can do, based on what they can produce, based on their skills. And so they think that they have to work hard and they have to be really productive. And if for some reason, if ever they're not productive, they'll no longer be lovable. So they work hard and they produce and they're amazing people and yet they're always a little bit afraid. What happens if I break my back? I can no longer produce. What happens if, if I start to lose my mind and I can no longer produce? Am I then going to be unlovable? A lot of young ladies learn early in their life that they're only as lovable as their looks. And so you walk around fearing, what happens if you gain 20 pounds? What happens when you start to wrinkle? What happens when you're not that beautiful teenager you once were? Are you still lovable? For other people growing up, their family just stressed intellectualism. And they stressed academia. And, and they stressed that if, if you really want to be lovable, I mean, you're okay being stupid. But if you really want to be lovable and win people over, you have to have degrees. You have to have intellectual prowess. You have to be able to articulate your argument. And if you can't do it, well, you're a second class citizen. So although we learn about God's unconditional love, there's always something in the back of my mind asking the question, Am I really lovable? And that's what we're going to talk about today as we turn towards Revelation 3. So we've been walking through this series called Hopeful. That is, that we are full of hope. Because as Christians, no matter 
what life throws at you. And life throws some pain your way. No matter what trials, no matter what tribulation, no matter what type of pain you are facing, we of all people can be full of hope because in the end, we know Jesus wins. In the end, we know Jesus is victorious. And in the end, we know we have a victory because we have it in Christ. And so of all people on this earth, we should be people full of hope. No matter the cultural context, no matter if there's a pandemic, no matter what you think about the politics that are happening right now, no matter what's going on, no matter the pain, no matter the suffering, we still can hold on to hope. Because we know that in the end, Jesus wins. So we're hopeful. So we started studying through Revelation, and we got into the first of four visions. The first of four visions are letters sent out to seven different churches. The number seven is a number for completeness. So we know that these seven churches have seven unique issues that are facing them, and yet each letter can be written to every church throughout the history of Christianity. Because... Every letter can apply to the situation we're going through right now. So we started looking through each each letter, and we're up to the church in Philadelphia. Let's go ahead and we'll start off with the church in Philadelphia. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. All right, let's dig in. And to the angel of the church in Sardis. So what do we know about Sardis? Sardis is about 30 miles southwest of Philadelphia. Sorry. What do we know about Philadelphia? Philadelphia is about 30 miles southwest of Sardis. Sardis was last week, so let's go to the next slide. So we've got a map here. And once again, you know, we're, we're fairly zoomed in, so you can't see, like, in the grand scheme of the Mediterranean where it is. But this is Asia Minor. So we've got Patmos. That's where the letters originated. We come up to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, and now we're to Philadelphia, about 30 miles southwest of Sardis. It was called the Gateway to the East. So it was a fairly important city. It was the last stop before you would travel further east It was a great spot for a trading post. It was also built on a fault line. Oh boy. (laughs) They they didn't quite understand it then, but it was built on a fault line. That produced a lot of volcanoes and earthquakes. 
The volcanoes pr produced great soil for grapes. So uh, you had a lot of wine that was being made there, and that made the, uh, the patron god Dionysus was the patron god of Philadelphia, the god of wine. In 17 AD, an earthquake destroyed the city. It was rebuilt by Caesar. And so they renamed, in honor of Caesar, they renamed it Neo-Caesarea, New Caesarea, New Caesar town, basically. New Caesarton. In honor of Caesar. So there was a really close relationship with Caesar, but not only was there a close relationship with Caesar, uh, uh, later on, they go ahead and rename it Flavius to honor that lineage of Caesars. So you, you see this imperial cult. We've talked quite a bit about the imperial cult, that it was worship of Caesar. The imperial cult had a fairly strong influence in Philadelphia because they loved the Caesar that rebuilt. However, though the Caesar rebuilt, they were still afraid. They still had the earthquake ringing in their ears. They did not move back into the city. Many people remained outside of the city. They would come into the city to work, but some of the structures were still shaken up by the earthquake. And so they weren't exactly structurally sound. There would be times when a building might collapse. So there was a lot of fear about the city itself. They didn't, they didn't particularly care to be inside the city itself. It makes me think about uh, this building, actually. Don't worry, it's not going to collapse. But if you talk to some of the guys that have been around a long time, they'll tell you that the, this building didn't always have these nice big beams. There's a reason for those beams. They put up this building first, and then all of a sudden the walls started to bow out. And they're like, uh-oh, we've got a problem here. And they built in these beams to make this building more structurally sound. How would you feel? Everybody is looking up right now like, good night, it's going to collapse. How would you feel, though, if you walked in here and you didn't see the beams and you saw the walls bowing out? You might think this is a bad spot to be right now. I don't know when that building's going to go, but it's going to go. So why don't we meet outside, Aaron? That's kind of how they felt about the city itself. They, it didn't look structurally sound. They could see the cracks. They could see the Boeing buildings, and they thought, I don't know if we really should be in here. So we'll come in here, we'll take care of business, but we'll get out really quick. So you've got a city that has changed its name. Remember, in those days, name had a lot to do with identity. So there, there's, as a city, their identity has changed a couple times, and they're also afraid. The, the city didn't quite offer the security and the safety that they were looking for. That's the cultural context that we're looking at as we dig in to Philadelphia. So to the angel of the church of Philadelphia write, the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. So the words of the Holy One. So this is how he describes himself, right? And the first, the first aspect of this description is Holy One. Holy in Greek is hagias, and it means to be set apart or other than. And it reflects this God who is so great He's other than. The, the best way we can describe God is other than. He's so much greater than anything else we have. He's so much greater than anything else that's around. The best term to describe him is other than. Well, other than what? 
other than the other gods that they were worshiping in Philadelphia. These man-made gods. These gods that were pretty vindictive. These gods that were manipulative. The one true God. And the thing that is most apparent in his other thanness compared to these other gods is he's real. He's real. So he's real, he's other than, and he's the true one. Some of your translations there will say faithful one. And that's really what this term means, the faithful one, meaning he keeps his promises. He stays true to his word. What he has written down in his word, he stays true to. This is going to be a comfort to the church that's under persecution because the temptation is to say, he's not really being true to his word. He's promised me certain things, but is he really going to... Is he really going to come through? And he's saying, yes, he is the faithful one. He will come through. He is faithful to his word. And he who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. This is a reference to Isaiah 22:22. And Isaiah, Isaiah is split into like two major sections. The first section is a question. The second session is a question too. But the first one, the question is, who will you trust? The Assyrian army is coming down into Israel. They're a great big army. Israel doesn't know if they can win. On their own, they absolutely cannot win. So the question is, will you go make an alliance with Egypt and trust in man, or will you make an alliance with God and trust that he will defend you? That's the question before the king. So as he's describing this question, as we're going through this question, he comes to a point where this is almost an exact quote of the one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one will open. And the idea is God is sovereign. God is the one in control. Whoever has the key to the city controls the city. God is the one with the key. So God is the one in control. God is sovereign. So you've got this description of the one who is other than, who is so great, we can't even exactly describe him, who is real compared to the false gods, the one who is faithful to his word, and the one who is sovereign. That's how Jesus is going to describe himself. And then he gives us the words, I know your works. And after he explains that he knows his works, he's going to give an outline with three beholds, or some of your translations will say, look. The first one is going to give a description of the situation. The second one is going to give a description of the opposition. And the third one is going to give a vindication. So I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. So God is sovereign. God is in control. He has opened this door to his kingdom. This is a reference to salvation. This is a reference to enter into a relationship with God by putting your faith and trust in Him. That's what this is a reference to. And no one is able to shut. What was happening is there was a group of people who were very religious. And because they were very religious, they wanted to be the ones in control of the door. And they wanted to tell them that they were the ones who had the key. 
who could open and shut the door to salvation, and you better listen to them, or they'll shut the door on you. This is what religion is based on. A few weeks ago, we talked about how religion and politics are very similar because they're both about power and control. The religious person wants to control you. They want you to believe that they have the power over the door, and if you're not pleasing them, if you're not jumping through the hoops that they want you to, they will shut the door on you. That's what they want you to believe. And what Jesus is saying is, no. There is no one on earth that can shut the door. Salvation is offered to all, and that door is open. He's going to keep the door open because he loves you with such a great love that he wants you to enter his kingdom. That's what he's getting at here. So the words are, I know your works, behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power. So this, he recognizes that they don't have the power and influence that other churches might have. And in particular, he's contrasting this with the church of Sardis that we studied last week. That church in Sardis had a reputation, they had a lot of influence, they had a lot of power. They were a big church. They were a big church that could change the culture. And yet they were a big church because, because they were coming in line with the culture. They weren't remaining faithful and true to God's Word. And because they weren't, they grew. And although they grew in power and influence, they were becoming disobedient to God. The church in Philadelphia, on the other hand, has little power, little influence. They're not some huge church that can wield a bunch of influence within the community. Instead, they're a small church with almost no influence. And yet, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. The word for kept here means to be, uh, con or means to conform. So they're saying that you have conformed. What he's saying to them is you have conformed to my word. You have taken my word and you have conformed to it. So kids, go ahead and break out your Play-Doh. If you, I know you already did. I don't need to say break it out, do I? You already have your Play-Doh? Yeah, go ahead, take it out. One of my favorite things to do with Play-Doh I don't know anyone else that likes to do this. I like to, I like to put my fingerprints on it. I don't know. Does anyone else like to put their fingerprints on it? Yeah. Awesome. Great. Sometimes what I like to do with Play-Doh, and this is kind of, it's kind of weird, but I like to just squeeze it until it like pops out of my knuckles. Anyone else like to do that? Yeah. All right. So kids, I know you guys have been memorizing scripture, right? You've been downstairs. You've been doing a lot of scripture memorization. And that is awesome. That is something that we need to do. But something that, that we don't often think about is in our hurry to memorize Scripture, we forget to conform to Scripture. So oftentimes we start to memorize Scripture and then we put it in our back pocket so that we can bring it out at any time, like, you know, when we're going to win a prize. You know, on a wanna night, you want to win that share. So you bring that scripture out of your back pocket, you recite it, you get the gold star, you get your share, and then you put it back in your back pocket and you forget about it. But that's not what scripture's there for. 
It's to conform our heart. It's to change our heart. And so the first question we need to ask is, what does this mean? What does it mean when God says, children, obey your parents? What does He want from me? Another one that my kids like to memorize is, how good is it when uh, brothers get along? I'm going to mess it up now. Live together in harmony. How good is it when brothers live together in harmony is like uh, oil dripping off the beard of Aaron. So I have a beard. My name is Aaron. They think it's hilarious. So then what does it mean? Why does it mean that that's good for oil to be dripping off your beard? But then beyond that, then we ask the question, how can I live this out? How can I live out living in harmony with my brothers? How can I live out being obedient to my parents? And when I think about that, I think of this Plato, and I, and I think the Plato conforms to my hand. My hand doesn't conform to the Plato. So when you are memorizing Scripture, I want you guys to think of Plato, and I want, to think, I want you to think of your heart. Is your heart Plato? that is conforming to the Scripture? Are you letting Scripture dictate your heart, or are you trying to dictate Scripture by your heart? Are you conforming to the Scripture? That's what the Plato's here for, kids. I want you all the time to think about, am I conforming my heart to Scripture? What is true in Scripture? Do I listen to it? Do I believe it? Do I apply it? Or do I just whip it out for a gold star, for a share, for a trip to Arizona, just to put it back away and never think about it again. But that's what they're doing in, in, in Philadelphia, is that they are conforming. They are letting Scripture, they are pretending my hand is Scripture and their heart is the Plato, and they are letting Scripture conform their heart. They're keeping it. They're conforming to it. They're and as their hearts conform in Scripture, their behavior changes. So that's what they're doing. They're letting Scripture conform their heart. And yet you keep my word and have not denied my name. So they're holding tight to, to Christ's name. They're, they're letting Scripture conform them. And that's why even if they're small and, and with no influence, they're still doing what's right. Because they're putting the praise of God above the praise of man. The church in Sardis put the praise of man above the praise of God. Then he goes on to describe the opposition. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of, uh, synagogue of Satan say that they are Jews, oh, sorry, who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. So he gives this description of who these people are that are opposing them. We've looked at this, this uh, synagogue of Satan before. What's happening here is that there are people that are claiming to be of God, claiming to be people of God, but are in direct opposition of God. That's what he means by synagogue of Satan. There are people in churches that claim to be representing God, but are in direct opposition of God today. He might call them a, a church of Satan. Because although they claim to be of God, they are in opposition of God. And they say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. And so here's where we see vindication. Vindication, I think, is important because everybody is looking for some type of vindication. 
we all recognize that to a certain extent we are flawed. We all recognize that at some point in our life, we have shaken our fist in rebellion against God and said, forget you, God, I'm going to do things my way. And because we have done that, we have separated ourselves from God, and all of us are scrambling to see how we can get in a right relationship with God again. And so often we try to do these works, and that's the appeal of religion. Religion says, if you're just good enough, if you just listen to the person that's trying to control you and jump through the hoops that they want you to jump through and don't do this and don't do that, then you'll be right with God. And what God says is, is that's all a bunch of rubbish. Your works are like dirty rags. You can't earn your right relationship with God. It doesn't matter how many things you boycott. It doesn't matter how many things you say are bad and how many hoops you jump through and what kind of righteous life you live. At one point in your life, you shook your fist against God and you said, I know better than you. And because of that, you're separated and you can never earn your way back. But religion says you can. God says that is rubbish. Sturdy rags. So then how do we get in a right relationship with God? God loved us with such an intense love that although even in the midst of our rebellion, He came and He paid the price so that you wouldn't have to because he knew you couldn't. No matter how hard you try, you can't pay the price. So he came and he lived on this earth. And he paid the price for you, even in the midst of your rebellion. And all you have to do to be in a right relationship with God is put your faith and your trust in him and his work. So he paid the price. And just to prove that he was God, just to prove it all, he rose from the dead. All you have to do to be in a right relationship with God is say, Jesus, I know that I've rebelled against you. And I know that you paid the price for my rebellion. And I trust that the price you paid is sufficient for me. And on that moment, God takes you from being dead in your trespasses and sins, full of rubbish works, to making them alive together with you. And he calls you righteous and blameless. He says that you've been washed, you've been made pure. And so what's going on here is that you've got a, a group of Christians in Philadelphia that are holding tight to that truth. They're saying, no, God paid the price for me. God loves me and he, he loves me so much that he came and he died for me. And he says that I'm righteous, and he says that I'm pure, and he says that I've been washed. But what, did, what was the opposition doing? They were saying, God doesn't love you. That's what they were saying. God doesn't love you. And, and if he really loved you, would he let you go through these trials? Would he let you go through this pain? They were in the midst of persecution. They were in the midst of being sent out from any type of community. You're having trouble getting a job? So did they. They got kicked out of their job just for saying they believed in Christ, just for saying, I won't bow down to Caesar. And what happened was the opposition then took that as an opportunity to say, see, God doesn't love you. 
If God really loved you, you wouldn't be experiencing these trials. If God really loved you, you wouldn't be put in this position. And sometimes I hear Christians today that say the same thing. If God really loved me then. So you might be going through some grief right now. You might be hurting. Life might not have turned out the way you wanted it to turn out. And so you start to use that as an excuse. And you start to say, if God really loved me, then I wouldn't be experiencing what I'm experiencing right now. And it's rubbish. God loves you. And he's going to work in the midst of the trial. It doesn't mean that he brought the trial on. It doesn't mean that he is responsible for maybe there's something evil that has happened to you. It doesn't mean he's responsible, but it does mean that he is there for you during the midst of it. And he can comfort you in the midst of your grief. He can comfort you in the midst of the trial. And even though your life doesn't work out the way you wanted it to, God is still there for you to provide comfort and love. And so the opposition came along and they said, see, God doesn't love you. And the vindication is that God will come and make them bow down before your feet and they will learn that I have loved you. God loves you with a great love. It's so difficult in our culture to understand this. It's so difficult in our conditional culture that teaches us that if you do such and such, you will no longer be loved. And what God is saying is, no, you already rebelled against me, and I died for you. I love you with an intense love, and there's nothing you can do to change that. There's nothing you can do to take God's love away from you. And it is that that helps us understand, and it is that concept that helps us conform our heart to Scripture. You see, as long as we believe God's love is conditional, we'll look for pieces of the Bible that we can use as weapons. We'll look for pieces of Bible that will justify our behavior. We'll look for pieces of the Bible that will rationalize whatever we want to do. But it's when we understand that God loves us unconditionally that we will then submit our heart to Scripture and then our heart will be conformed by Scripture instead of us trying to conform Scripture to our wicked heart. God loves you unconditionally. He goes on, because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. There's a lot of controversy about this uh, one verse in particular. I'm just going to just tell you what I think. I think it's most likely about a pre-tribulation rapture. So we see that there is an hour of trial that is coming on the whole world. I would say that that is an hour of judgment and an hour of uh, tribulation. That would be what most Christians consider the, the seven-year tribulation. The fact that he's going to keep them out of that hour is most likely this idea of a pre-trib meaning, rapture, meaning, that's a lot of churchy terms, but meaning that God will take the church out. He will rapture the church up out off of the earth 
before the tribulation comes. I could be wrong about that. There's a lot of different ideas, but that's kind of where I land on it. I am coming soon. Hold fast that you have what you have so that no one may seize your crown. Unlike the church at Sardis that uh, was about to die and they needed to strengthen what was left, this church has good doctrine. This church is letting the word conform their hearts. And so what he says is to hold fast to that. Hold fast to the doctrine that you have. Hold fast to the word of God so that it may continue to conform your heart so that no one may seize your crown. We've talked about this idea that uh, the crown is salvation. And the idea is that there were a lot of people that were trying to convince them that God has shut the door, that their salvation is no longer there. And what he's trying to do is remind them, no, God loves you and I have given you a crown and no one can seize it. No one can take hold of it. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. So we've got a city that has changed its name, a city in identity crisis, where the inner parts of the city were not safe. And what God is stressing in verses 12 and 13 is, look, You live in a city where it's in the midst of an identity crisis and the city is telling you, you don't belong here. You have these crazy ideas about God. You don't belong. And what Jesus is saying is, no. You belong with Him. He gives you a place where you do belong a place where there is safety, and a place where there is security. In the city where you don't belong, in a city where there's no safety, in a city where there's no security, Jesus is saying, you belong with Him. He loves you. With such a love that even while you were rebellious, He died for you. It is because of that love that He has provided a place where you belong, and a place that is safe, and is secure. And one day, one day, we will be there. We are full of hope because we know that in the end, no matter what life throws at us, in the end, Jesus is victorious. And in the end, because Jesus is victorious, we will also be victorious. The Holy One, the One who is set apart, who is defined by His other thanness, the True One who is faithful to His Word, the One who holds the keys to His kingdom, who is sovereign over all, says He loves you unconditionally. And He is providing a place where you belong, where there is safety and security. Will you join Him by putting your faith and trust Jesus. Dear Lord, we thank you for your word. We know that throughout the years of Christianity, people have tried to snuff out your word. People have tried to change your word. People have tried to undermine your word. 
And yet we know that it is something we can trust because we can trust you. And we know that no matter what trial we go through today, whether it's persecution, whether it's grief, whether it's a life that hasn't turned out the way we thought it would be, we know that we can trust you with our lives because you're the Holy One, the Faithful One, the One who holds the keys. In your name we pray.